0: Still can't hear me. You can hear me now. All right. Okay. We're doing this again.
1: was a lion in the tall grass wish i
2: had a pilot and a podcast wish i had a strong donkey that can holla and travel with portable speakers i wish i had a million dollars <laughs>
3: Wish I had a million dollars.
2: Hello
0: and welcome to the latest episode of The Debrief. I Hi, I'm your host, Brianna Joy Gray, coming to you from sunny D.C. Uh, here to talk about whatever you want to talk about. As per usual, we will be focusing the conversation broadly on the latest episode of Bad Faith Podcast called Nationalize This. With the great Matt Brinnig, who you all know and love of the People's Policy Project. And also new to the podcast, but not new to the area of writing Lengthy, important, substantive, detailed articles about what it would take to nationalize Johanna Bozua. I loved her piece. I strongly recommend it because on the left, we're often accused of what? being impractical, being pie in the sky, being overly optimistic, living in a fantasy land, pursuing utopias that are never going to exist, blah, blah, blah. So when some good policy wonks have put their heads together and figured some good shit out for us that we can use to bash liberals over the head with, I am going to platform them. So I hope you found this episode as useful as I did. And it's the beginning, I think, of a lot of substantive conversations that can help push the Overton window left. Instead of sitting around saying, oh, of course, Biden's not going to do it, let's create a reality where more and more people are aware of where we should be, and then maybe we can get something like I don't know a fifteen dollar minimum wage. L O L. Let's start by listening to a clip from today's episode to orient ourselves. Note that about around six o'clock, a longer clip of this episode was put up on Bad Faith YouTube. We did just have an episode on censorship, so you know the algorithm's doing us wrong. We've been stuck at like just shy of sixty thousand subscribers on YouTube, which you know because you guys have been commenting to this effect is not commensurate the quality of the content that is being put out. So even if you already watched or listened to this video on Patreon, like, subscribe, it helps us out. It helps the algorithm leave a comment, all of that good stuff. Um, share it with your friends. Uh, and for those of you who aren't premium subscribers, $5 a month, you get this and the whole ca- back catalog of like, what, 80 episodes at this point of premium content. So it's well worth your while, I think. But without further ado, let's listen to this clip and get right into the questions i think in people's minds and maybe i'm just revealing my own like lizard brain but in people's minds when they hear nationalization they they hear you know appropriation of private property that's you know just stolen by like a despotic government And people aren't compensated fairly. They're not, I don't think, imagining you're a shareholder, you got bought out. It's an
4: acquisition in in most countries. Now, in some countries, they do nationalize without paying out existing shareholders. And so, yeah, I think the word is unfortunately ambiguous because sometimes Mm. people will use it to just mean, what if we just seized and didn't pay out existing shareholders and Mm bondholders? And you know that can cause a lot of problems unless you're... Really serious about doing it for the whole economy, you know, in like a kind of revolutionary sense. But if you're doing it piece by piece, that can cause um, uh, a crisis for your financial markets and stuff mm. like that as people lose faith. But no, you're talking about acquisition. Companies acquire each other all the time. Yeah. It's the same process, basically. Or you can use some of the other processes that Johanna has talked about, bankruptcy and receivership and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, outside of a crisis moment that you can take advantage, of we're talking about an acquisition, um, it's maybe a little bit more forceful if you're using eminent domain. But you know, they're getting paid out; they'll get paid out similarly if some other company wanted to buy them out. You know, it's just that they don't have a choice to say no.
0: <laughs> it's just that they don't have a choice to say no. What do you make of it, uh, Cade? You're up first. What's on your mind?
5: Hi. Well, I mean, I do find the idea of like nationalization really interesting and using sort of eminent domain. I'm A lot of people were talking about that during that we should have used eminent domain to take the vaccine, um, you know, and provide compensation. And then we could have, you know, produced it, you know, at a higher quantity. Um, Mm -hmm. But I actually wanted to ask you about um, this is sort of related, but there's been this sort of raft of stories coming out about the White House considering and then deciding not to send gas cards to families. Um, oh, I missed like,
6: that.
5: Yeah. So I guess, I mean, I can read to you just a little bit from there's a story. This is, I think there's a, a bunch of these stories have come out. I think this one's, it says it's from WDBJ7. I don't really know where that is, but it was White House decides against sending gas cards to families. The White House considered sending gas cards to families to help offset record high gas prices before eventually deciding it's not feasible. A source Mm. familiar with the administration's thinking said the Biden administration is worried gas cards won't work because of execution issues and fraud concerns. The source said in the past, cards have been stolen from mailboxes. So like that just was enraging to be like, we did have, Mm. we did just have this like COVID response and they, you know, for all their failings, they did manage to send um, checks or direct deposits depending on, you know, how you wanted it. Mm-hmm. um and so like obviously they could send us money if they wanted to and that's always like i've always favored a carbon tax and we know that would increase gas prices and so the sort of standard left response is well okay you're going to take the revenue from the carbon tax and then you're going to give it back to the people in sort of a ubi to compensate them so people aren't worse off it's just that they're incentivized to not use gas um so i i don't i just i guess i wanted your thoughts on. Them decide The Biden administration considering, but deciding not um, to send any relief to people um, in terms of money for gas.
0: Well, it might not surprise you to hear me say that I think it's unbelievably stupid. <laughs> I mean, look, so to your point, they can send money if they're worried about. First of, all, first of all, I should say that I think it's ridiculous for them to be thinking about people stealing each other's gas cards out of the mail. Like if you think that that's that's where we're at, if we think the level of desperation is that everyone constantly is receiving mail and at risk of any of their mail being stolen at any given point, right? Like we're all constantly receiving Amazon packages. Like this this is the world we're living in. And suddenly he thinks that of all things, people are going to to be driven to federal crime and stealing from each other's mailboxes over gas cards of all things, not people's social security checks and Medicare checks and everything else that comes through the mail regularly, huge sums of money, all kind of potential for fraud. Some of which, you know, obviously happens in the normal course of things. It sounds like a pretext and it sounds stupid as hell, but even if I were going to buy into that pretext to your point, they could obviously just send money. They could obviously just send money, but we live in this God awful neoliberal hellscape where We will, the the state will recognize that you are poor. The state will recognize that you're struggling enough to say we should help you out by sending you something, but God forbid you spend a single dollar on something other than what we've prescribed for you. God forbid you send even one cent of this gas money on, you know, tuition or food or your rent this month because you've already, you know, lost possession of your car. Like, God forbid. Um... So I don't know. I'm looking at the story. I see it all over the place. I see it now in the week. And the same copy that you were reading was printed by CNN. I don't know how I missed this one, but um, it's really frustrating. So thank you for hipping me to yet another way that uh, the Biden administration manages to disappoint.
5: (laughs) No problem. And I, I haven't had a chance to watch the episode yet, but I'm looking forward to it.
0: Thank you very much. And thanks for calling in. All right, Dave, you're up next. What's on your mind? Dave, want to unmute yourself? There you okay.
7: go. Can you hear me now? I can. Can you hear me now? Okay, yes. sorry. Permissions were slow, apparently. This is the first time I've done this. No worries. Okay. Yeah, sorry. This, uh...
0: Welcome. Okay. <laughs> uh, thank you.
7: <laughs> this is like the first person I've talked to in like four years that's not my parents. But, um, Oof,
0: I get uh, that. Where, where are you yeah. from, David?
7: Uh, California, Los Angeles area.
0: Okay. You're, there's no um, people aren't out. I feel like it's such good weather that people have been able to kind of even during the height of covid sit outside and go on hikes. And at least that's what Instagram is telling me, that people in California have never really had to sequester the yeah. way the rest of us have. Yeah,
7: I mean, it's just people are irresponsible here for the most part <laughs> and then kind of ignore it. I mean, you can go outside, but like at the same time, there's like no differentiation for people. But I've been stuck in, inside since well before that. I've been dealing with like a long-term injury. So. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. Um, well, let's chat.
0: Let's, let's yeah. be each other's comfort buddy. What's in your mind tonight? All right. All right.
7: Um, yeah. So I was going to say that I'm full for um, nationalization of uh, industries like uh, oil um, because we really need something to curb this. Mm. Uh, everything that's going on with the climate at this point. Um, my biggest concern, though, is like with everything else, um, until you get the government somewhat under control, where it's responsive to average citizens, even if you nationalize the industry, it's not necessarily going to have the results that you want. I mean, this is just, just for example, like my, um, my problems are with um, the UC system, mm. um, University of California. Mm-hmm. Um, are you familiar with um, how they they're created as a uh, public private partnership? Um, well,
0: didn't that? I mean, I, I'm vaguely aware of the way things shifted under Reagan. Um, but do you want to do you want to elaborate?
7: Yeah. Well, that's really the the pricing structure under Reagan is what he affected by making it cost more, which is a huge problem. But I was talking more about how the administrative structure is defined. Mm-hmm. Um, with the, uh, with the UC Regents because basically what it is, is you have the UC Regents and those are political appointments made by the governor. And unfortunately they're made for 12 years and cannot be removed even by a vote of the fellow Regents. So mm. there's a lot of problems there. Um, but the board of Regents, is supposed to oversee UC office of the president and then UC office of the president oversees the individual campuses. The problem is, is because the regents positions have been handed out largely as political favors for a number of years. No one's managing UC office of the president and UC office of the president has been doing crazy things um, like taking money back from the campuses Mm. uh, to redistribute at their will and basically going behind the regents back when they're supposed to be submissive it's a whole thing they're like they're just you know they're just blatantly ignoring their charter at this point and doing whatever it is they want to do
0: so is your concern Um, that if let's say the acquisition model that if the government was the majority owner of one of these or all of these uh oil and gas companies that they would still not say because of the Political bent of the administration, or because of the same kind of capture that exists right now, um, still not do the things that needed to be done in terms of a just transition to clean energy, or whatever it is. Yes, yes absolutely.
7: Um, I think you could just yeah. end up with another kind of state-sponsored oligarch instead of a private one.
0: Well, here's this is this is an argument that a lot of you know conservatives and libertarians make. I was actually just today watching um, a. A Charlie Kirk debate because I am debating whether or not to take up an offer to debate him and so uh, I was watching him and Ben Burgess and you know he makes a familiar the familiar argument about how you know you can't trust government for all of these reasons and there's all of this corruption and they right. poorly administer everything and you know con- uh, conservatives have this line that goes something like uh, democracy is terrible but it's the least bad thing or whatever is the least bad form of government there is uh, and that's kind of how I feel about government. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, well, what's the alternative? I mean, I, 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 hear you and I hear it's obviously a concern. I, I, right. I conservatives will say things like, you know, government is corrupt. I'm like, absolutely. But the, the it's, it's corrupted by the same parties that you want to give full control over to. <laughs> right. And the, the suggestion to me is to figure out how to weed out those corruptions and make it more democratic and have more accountability from the people. So if the question is that the regent system and the appointment system lends itself to corruption and an inability to oust folks when they aren't serving the interests of the state or of the, even the current administration because they can be in there for 12 years, then that seems like a system that needs to be reformed. But I'm not sure that's an argument yeah. against nationalization per se.
7: No, I actually, am, I'm not arguing against nationalization at all. Mm. Uh, my concern is just as you do it, I want to make sure that the structure gets defined properly. Because, um, again, I, cause I, like I said, uh, I actually agree with you that mm. the issue is not to get government out, but to figure out how to get government responsive once again. Yeah. And, you know, helping people. Um, yeah,
0: yeah. I think it's interesting. I, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. sorry
7: go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I think a lot of that has to do with incentives mm-hmm. and the sort of security that some of these places have. Because um, like I said, 12 years is a long time, and mm-hmm. they can't even be removed uh, by their fellow regents. Um, I mean, they had a problem with um, when the regents was barred from UC Davis because at like their other business, they had threatened an employee with a firearm. And then also they were like on the radio sexually Jesus. harassing the host. Yeah, it was a thing. Um,
0: you can. <laughs> it's a real mess. They yeah, like, threatened no a fellow one... employee with a firearm.
7: Yeah, I it's I, I believe it was not a UC employee, but a employee at one of their other businesses. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: So so, so long no. as it's other people that they're, they're wielding weapons. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but we couldn't get yeah. rid of
7: that guy for a long time. You know. <laughs> Yeah, that's wild. They can be in jail and nothing can happen. It's caused it's caused all kinds of problems down down the chain because basically um, what's happened is that um, UC Office of the President has an agreement with the state for funding that they need to get X number of students into the schools, into the UC system, in order to get the money from the state that they yeah. need. Yeah, um, I hear
0: that. I, 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 so yeah. my, the long and short of it is for me that I think that sometimes liberals, even mm-hmm. leftists, will shy away or, or try to downplay criticisms that conservatives or anybody, but my, namely conservatives, often are making in bad faith about mm-hmm. the problems with government. And I think yes. that we, sh- we should not, generally speaking, see that ground, but acknowledge those problems and talk about solutions to those problems. Because when you say, oh, no, 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 it's fine, you know, like, or like try to argue against the idea that governments can be corrupt or inefficient, yes. it, it makes you seem less credible. And it also yes. prevents you from actually rehabilitating what is a vulnerability. Uh, yes. And they they right. end up winning. So I think that I, I'm really glad that you raised that point, you um, It is something that I think actually was very useful in my argument with – in my conversation with Glenn Lowry because I think a lot of times when I do talk to conservatives, they anticipate you digging in your heels in a place that is difficult to defend and is totally not necessary to prove your point. And so as I'm contemplating like, oh, do I want to debate Charlie Kirk about race? No, I don't. But – You know, can I, you know, I'm imagining I was playing it out. I've been playing it out all day in my head and it's like, oh, it's in the same way that people make arguments like, you know, government is flawed. A lot of times people want to make arguments about the relative intellectual merit of groups. And, you know, we can have that fight, but also I can say, what difference does this make from a policy perspective? What are you actually advocating for? Why is it so important to you to create a, you know, a 18th century classification of skull sizes you know, what are you saying <laughs> that if you do decide that somebody is less than that's somebody good. else, that you're what, that they don't get social programs, they don't deserve housing, that you can throw them in a gulag? Like, tell me, like, go to the end of this. And why are you so right. preoccupied with this if it doesn't actually have any policy implications? Because, you know, right. all they really want to say is this is the reason to cut social programs. And we all know what that is. Right. Exactly. Anyway, thank you, David. I'm sorry for that frolicking detour.
7: Oh, yeah, that's all right. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say with, with the UC, the solution was trying to advocate for um, regent reform, so reform in the, the term of their uh, administration. So just to try and knock it down to like four years was what mm. we were trying to do, even mm. though that seems like kind of a long time. Um, but it didn't, it, it didn't pass in California. It didn't get on the ballot, I believe. So uh, it, it's yeah, it's it's a whole, <laughs> it's a lot of uh, work.
0: That's interesting. I, I think it's worth doing. It's worth doing some more. I don't know. Sometimes you get pushed back doing too much California or New York episode coverage. But I think I I, I think California is fascinating. Ever since the Ash Cara episode, I'm kind of just fascinated by how such a liberal place can have so many contradictions. So thank you for calling in, David, and hitting me to that. And um, sure. I'll keep well, I'll be keeping my eyes go, open.
7: Sorry. Just in that in that case, have you have you heard anything about the Munger Dorm that UCSB is trying to build? I haven't. You should look at that because basically Warren Buffett's business partner is trying to pay a large amount of money to build a dorm that packs in as many students as possible with, like, no windows.
0: No windows? Um, That's not even, like, legal in New York. You can't yeah, call it a one-bedroom if it doesn't have windows.
7: It's not legal in California either, and it's not really clear what the state is planning to do, but they are full forwards on this. So you look up uh, Munger, M-U-N-G-E-R um UC santa barbara and you'll you'll find articles with uh, architects uh, you know architects complaining about this because it's uh sort of an insane response to a lack of housing
0: that's nuts all right thank you david yeah, thank, no <laughs> thank <problem>. you <laughs> for for bringing right. bringing me some more bad news <laughs> yeah i know <laughs> all right have a good one be well all right, all right gabrielle you're up next and um, meet yourself and let me know what's on your mind
6: yeah, don't be mad at me, please.
0: <laughs> Why would I be mad at you, it's Gabriel? A, what, are your, what are you thinking and feeling?
6: Yeah, um, well, I didn't have time to listen to the entirety of your show about this not today, but uh, I don't know if you talked about the case of Petro-Canada in Canada, actually, like they nationalized the uh, part of the oil industry here.
8: Mm-hmm.
6: But the, the problem is, like, uh, that was done by the liberals and the NDP, the third left-wing party
8: mm-hmm.
6: but then a few years later about 15 years later like the uh the conservatives uh, had a majority and they they uh, privatized it again so mm. that i think like the big danger <laughs> but that's it that was a good example because that it, it's a textbook of a good nationalized uh, um, industry to some extent like it wasn't the entire industry but they did it correctly in a sense that they didn't by the they didn't like uh, pass the bill and uh, privatize um foreigners' uh, industry like for on the cheap. They did like a very uh, they did like a they bought it at a very expensive price. So it wasn't like in Guatemala or something like that where they uh, they just offered like the um, the property uh, value of their uh, industry there. So uh, for the fruit industry, anyway. Just something to uh, think about. No, that's well, a good... well, tell me
0: how how did it go over? Uh, what was the public response like to nationalization, and how did people feel when it was privatized again? Was there any backlash?
6: Yeah, well, the country here is kind of divided, like you, in a sense. Like we have Alberta, which is like uh, Canada's Texas, and they really, and most of the oil comes from there. So they were really mad at the fact that. I, I think it's more like a an ideologically... Uh, way of thinking that they were mad at it because it wasn't necessarily bad for their industry because what happened, it happened during the mid-70s uh, and after the Yom Kippur War in 73 where the oil prices really exploded mm-hmm. and Trudeau, uh, senior father pushed by the NDP they wanted to create like a, a way to protect the, the part of the countries without oil like essentially mm. Ontario, Quebec and the Maritimes and also, they wanted to finance like research and development for the oil sands and uh, the uh, the oil industry in the north, and also offshore drilling. And the oil industry is just really doesn't invest in R and D usually. So basically, it helped the private sector because most of the oil sand research was done by Petro Canada, which was the mm-hmm. nationalized entity. So essentially, they to create it, they the federal government already had some sh- shares and some uh, some company uh, doing mostly uh, R and D in the north, but also they nationalized the uh, Petrófina, which was a Belgian company, and they had like a lot of uh, gas stations, and they created a pipeline like uh, from coast to coast because they wanted to make more uh, traffic like from coast to coast instead of just uh, north to south. And mm. uh, so that was fairly popular. Like uh, Canadians were actually proud of this. Like my grandfather, my father and I, like, we always <laughs> buy gas there. Mm-hmm. But 15 years later, uh, well, like I said, the conservatives came in and they, they started to privatize it. So they did the initial public offering uh, and they sold 20% of the shares in 91. And in few installments, they sold, the entire, they privatized the entire company.
0: And but- then what happened?
6: Then what happened? But yeah, we're like...
0: yeah, go
6: ahead. Well essentially that was good for like I said earlier, that was good for the entire industry because Petro Canada was really the trailblazer for the oil and sand industry. So they did basically most of the R and D. So so following that, like basically it was kind of a freebie for the the other uh uh companies, private mm-hmm. companies. So but like I said, like it's it's just People but I mean are, in terms I, of
0: what – like were there any downstream effects? Like where did oil prices change? Was there any backlash? Did people – you know, was there any public reaction to the, the privatization? You know, this, I'm, this, I'm just curious. You know, obviously there were different countries and Americans have a particularly um, – and hospitable attitude to these kinds of things that I think is fairly unique in the world. But I'm just curious, not how did the companies feel about it, how did Canadians feel about
6: it? Okay, yeah. Well, it wasn't the goal. It, it wasn't like Venezuela where we just nationalize everything and mm-hmm. lower the price. That wasn't the case. But they, it was more like a, a safety net and to push R&D in places that uh, maybe the private sector wouldn't do some R&D. So mm-hmm. uh, the price was because we had a, it was just it was a big player but they had like it was a big industry besides what was prioritized. so it's, it didn't really change the the prices um so in that case just another big player in the game and a, like a safety net to ensure that uh, uh i mean the uh, the procurement would be uh, available everywhere in the country i mean uh, Oil, will not, I mean, there was this way. It was a way to ensure that the east part of the country would would be able to buy uh, buy oil at a relatively good price. But the uh, but yeah, that's true. Like they did lower the price during the seventies. That kind of pissed off like the the and uh, I mean uh, Alberta, mm-hmm. and that really gave us. Well, I think they they're, they were ideologically against it in the beginning. That's the main thing. But also, like they did lower the prices in the '70s when it was very high to some extent. But it's anyway that's what it is. In a way, they shouldn't complain because they subsidized. Like they did a lot of R and D that would not have been done, so they benefited from it. They just don't see it. They don't. I think they are morally opposed by it to some mm. extent.
0: <laughs> yeah. No. That's but... that is that is interesting, and it's. It, it is interesting i i'd be i'd be curious to see you know if they were making arguments that the reason that they wanted to make it public nationalize it was to do the kind of r and d that the companies weren't doing on their own that i'm curious whether what the arguments were when they were moving to make it private again so were they saying oh we've done the r and d that's necessary That were they saying you know we need to generate revenue or they say i mean like i'm just really curious about how they framed it to counter the original okay. argument for privatizing it, or for making it, for nationalizing yeah.
8: it. Well,
6: they frame it as, what I said, like they were, initially it was really built on on growth, not on profit.
8: Mm-hmm. So
6: that's why they did a lot of R&Ds and they, they bought a lot of other entities to a lot of gas stations too, and not just in refineries. And then that's, what, that's how they sold it. So it wasn't really profitable. And that's mm-hmm. the thing too. They privatized it when it just was about to, be profitable because they did a lot of research in oil and sand that really cost them a lot of money. But then, just right, <laughs> just when they reach like a like the tip of point where it's becoming uh, profitable, they, they privatized it basically. So, we didn't, <laughs> mm, of so course, way, we didn't. I mean, the, the private industry sector really benefited from it, but they don't, like I said, it, it's not in the, the psyche of the people here that. That was the case. Mm. Anyway,
0: it never is. You know, it does feel like there's this this weird failure to advertise your wins on the left. You know, last summer or one of these COVID summers are all blending together at this point. I remember, um, you know, walking around my old neighborhood and I passed this pool. Uh, that I hadn't noticed before and I googled it and there was all this information about how it was one of these new deal pool projects and it was so lovely and just like nestled into my little neighborhood and at one point in New York you know when I was still living in New York I did I found this map of all of these um, new deal projects and you can see in your neighborhood oh this was funded then and this was built then and it really makes you feel like you're a part of something and it really visibilizes all of the infrastructure that we're still relying on and still makes our cities great from the 1940s. And it's like there should be plaques everywhere. Like, you know, li- liberals and leftists should be heralding those wins. There should be like a national day of like public works where we celebrate all of these the, these beautiful tiled, you know, subway systems and the art that was commissioned and put on these walls and the frescoes that are in the courthouses and all of this gorgeous stuff. We haven't had anything nice since then. <laughs> you know, we have you know, these horrible, brutalist new courthouses downtown, you know, compared to these beautiful archways of the ones near Bowling Green. That's not the point. Nobody cares about the New York court system um, building the detail that I'm getting into. Them. The point is that like, it is very interesting to me that we don't get the left heralding its wins that way. And it does seem to be because at least in the United States, there are similar interests on both sides of the aisle that uh, are invested in the potential of one day privatizing. And we're never going to get some kind of institutional choice like a day of remember you know a day of celebration a day of commemoration that will constantly highlight the extent to which public works are actually in fact a good thing but thank you for calling in with your perspective gabrielle that that's that's some interesting perspective okay thank you see ya all right tom you're up next what's on your mind we got we got back-to-back toms we got lot, lots of toms coming our way want to unmute yourself tom tom number one tom with the bus photo all right, I'm, don't make me go to Tom number two. He's eager, waiting. I can I can feel his anticipatory energy. Okay, here we're doing it. Tom Sermon. Perhaps the better Tom. I don't know. <laughs> can you unmute yourself and let us know what's on your mind? Hi, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Good.
3: Um I don't know. I'm good. I was thinking um when I saw the title, you know, it kind of reminded me have you ever seen the um documentary hyper normalization?
0: No, what's that about?
3: Adam Curtis.
0: Oh, Mm-mm.
3: it's about um, you know, it's it, it's a really good. It's about you know, almost three hours long, and it's about you know, it's about how in like in the Soviet Union, people like couldn't imagine anything but the status quo, even though they knew the whole system was completely falling apart and it was unworkable, but there was never any like you know any other vision of what it could be without it. So everyone pretended everything was fine and everything was normal and everything was going to be fine. And the the documentary is about like how Western powers are kind of doing the same thing that we basically politicians, the corporations use the politicians to just basically keep us, you know, like thinking everything's going to be fine and, you know, we're not going to ever have any problems, you know, and it can go on like this. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I feel like it's, it's like, like, nationalization of oil, I mean, we will never nationalize anything in this country until we get in the streets. I mean, I say it every time, but it's the truth. Because, I mean, that's the whole point. If they're afraid of any, like, I mean, even in the Halliburton serves the meals in Iraq in the war, you know, you, there's, they don't have an army cook anymore. Everything's been privatized. Yeah. And that's the way we're moving. And I just feel like, you know, we can't have, like, anything nice. We're not going to have those beautiful public works programs. We're not going to have anything nice unless we get in the streets and make them and take it from them. I mean, literally take it, take it back.
0: We're not going to get anything. I I, I like your energy, Tom. Like I'm, I'm feeling you. Like I like that energy, but who was on recently? um, Who was talking about, you know, we don't, Oh, it was um, Andrew Coburn who was talking about how it it kind of boggles his mind how there was this huge anti-war movement in you know the 90s and people were in the streets uh in a way that just isn't existing here today despite the very you know the heavy coverage of Ukraine and people's investment and the kind of um politicization of it with the wearing of lapel pin, you know Ukraine lapel pins and you know there's a real kind of like social media energy around it but it's not directed in an anti-war direction Everything it seems is like commodified within two seconds. It's well, just the new American flag pin, and I don't know. I don't know how to resist that. I, what do you think?
3: I think an event, you know, I think that it has to trigger us, and I, like you know, like George Floyd triggered us. But the thing is, we we, we get to see, that that event was tamped down. I mean, that the, the, that summer they tamped it down. I mean, I remember Al Sharpton. Oh, we got to stop this now. We'll come back and. S- late august or september we'll have a protest about something he said you know because the things got started getting out of hand it wasn't just about defund the police or even police it was about the society we're living in and how it's corrupt and everything is corrupt and we just they like hyper normalization The, the politicians and the government and the elites they are there to make sure that nothing becomes you know Public, you know, no, no, there's never socialized anything. We're not going to socialize medicine. Like I say, like you get so much, you lose, you get cancer or you get a major illness in your 50s or something, you lose all your wealth. I mean, that's just the way it's designed. It's designed so the wealthy can always just extract all our wealth. And if we won't take it back, like I said, we have to get mystery. street. I don't know how it's going to happen. I don't really know. I, I think that. It has, to, it has to be, you know, we have to, the media, we don't even have a fourth estate. Without a fourth estate, you can't have a free society. I mean, I mean, we the fourth estate, I guess, is the fifth estate. It's the people online and the internet. But, it, sorry, I get really worked
0: No, up. no, no, I, I'm with you. And that's why, as you know, we have all these conversations um, about left media, because it does feel like that's a, an important prong of it. And I think, you know, you've listened to this podcast, you know, how often we've talked about, you know, George Floyd coming to nothing because it's not just awareness. It's not just investment because in, whether it's George Floyd or Ukraine, people are aware, people are invested. There's no, there's no issue there. You know, it's what happens next. And, you know, it's difficult to talk about, I mean, you know, get to platform to being too specific about what might be required. <laughs> but, you know, I, I'm I'm interested to hear what people feel like they're personally willing to do because when I was talking to Astra about the student debt strike, for instance, you know, a few months ago, It's like, to me, you know, I understand people not wanting to go out on a limb and, let's say, default on their loans and incur the credit consequences of of doing so, especially if, obviously, you're already financially hit up. That's why you don't want to pay your loans, you know, in the first place. Um, But, you know, I remember reflecting on myself and what it would take for me to take that hit, especially since, you know, I'm lucky enough to be able to actually afford my payments, you know if i were doing it with enough people and i thought it was going to make enough difference if there was some you know list that said oh you in a million 2 million 10 million 50 40 million i was trying to think to myself what is my number for my willing you know that would make me willing to take the credit hit and it's not that big a number but it is something more than 1
3: Well, you have to have financial stability you have to know that you can make it you know that it, well, it,
0: well i'm saying that even for me as someone who does have relative financial stability it was going to take a significant number well, so for I, people who have much less Sorry, Unless the
3: whole system's designed that way so that we never can, you know, protest. So it's all like it's, it's got to stay the way it is. And we can't give the people anything. They won't give us a, a, a public option because it's a slippery slope towards, you know, towards socialism, they say. And they won't allow it. It's just the neoliberal left. I mean, like Clinton, when, when he came in, like Jimmy Dore talks about, you know, how he came in NAFTA and did all these things. He did them because he could do them because he had a, fa- a liberal face. Bush couldn't get it done. Bush won because it was a conservative thing. The workers were like, no, but, you know, it, but a liberal faith can come in and destroy us. I mean,
0: yeah, we, I hear your exasperation and I'm glad you're expressing it because I think a lot of people feel it. And even though I know that sometimes it can feel like a, you're beating your head against a wall, I think there is some catharsis and understanding that a lot of people are in the same place and that you're not alone. And, you know, I'm I'm open to ideas. I mean, let me ask you this, Tom. Mm-hmm. What, issue, what issue is the issue for you that makes you most likely to want to you know, grab a pitchfork and head out into the street right now?
3: It's the war. I mean the escalation of tensions all around the world, the United States constantly killing innocent people.
0: And are you, you know, I don't mean this judgmentally. Like some people would be like, well, have you organized? Like I'm not asking, but I'm asking, are you in a membership organization or something where you can find some kind of solidarity or feel like you can have direction?
3: No, I have You know, I grew up, I mean, I was like, I remember it's a quick story, but I can say Mm
0: -hmm.
3: it's like nine years old. I'm watching football game with my grandfather and I go, there's a be all you can be army commercial. And I say, I'd love to be in the army. He looked at me. I'd never seen my grandfather mad. I've never seen him angry. He, sh- he was shaking. And he was older. he was almost dead. And he was like, sis, like, you don't ever fucking do that. And then he mm. told me why. Because I didn't even know I had an uncle who was, he was a fighter pilot in World War II and in Korea. He was shot down in Korea. Mm. And he was, he was on the front page of the New York Times, the last day of the war. Mm. I was a prisoner of war. And he never came home. And, you know, and my, I mean, I knew there was like a sadness in my family. I didn't know it then, but, you know, I could feel it. It's like, you know, my father, you know, because this was, I didn't even know this man existed until I was nine years old. That I had an uncle who was, you know, and it's just a sadness that had pervaded, you know, just overtaken my family. And, you know, because they'd lost this, you know, Donald, he was, you know, he was the oldest son and he was the hero, really. And, you know, so, I mean, I, always had that anti-war because my grandfather was just like, you know, in that moment, I realized yeah. and I could see the emotion in him. And it's always affected me, you know. And so, I mean, yes, I've always been anti-war. I mean, I've, you know, I was in some of those protests in the 90s and in 01, 02, 03, you know, when we went to Iraq.
0: Yeah.
3: Yeah. I mean, Does
0: anything I, feel different for you now in particular? From then versus I feel now? like
3: it's worse. In what like way? It, I, people are more distracted and less, you know. I don't think they're. We can, like, even focus on these things, on these huge issues that are, you know, like people, like the fact that people could actually contemplate going to war with Russia right now. When I was a kid, we were scared shitless of nuclear war. You know, I was because I remember ducking cover yeah you know it we it ended about third grade, but I, we had it until about third grade. You go out in the hall and you, you get up under your desk you know and they tell you about the war and it's mutually assured destruction why don 't we get that now it's like oh, we can't let putin do this no he can, we can let Putin do this because at this point it's he has three four thousand of sophisticated nuclear weapons i mean and he <laughs> I yeah. did. I feel. I feel it's worse. I'm sorry. I'm a pessimist. No, no, no. I.
0: I, 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 I don't disagree. My mother says something similar. And you know, I said. I've told this during the podcast before that she felt. She said that she felt in in '92. Um, she felt when 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 Clinton was elected the same way she felt when Biden was elected, and it was kind of the final straw for her. And we we did leave the country. <laughs> we left the country until 2001, and. You know, it does feel like history's repeating itself, but things are worse. I hear you on the distraction point. I find myself unable to focus. I know a lot of you are mad at me. I'm sure Carol's going to get in this queue and tell me I haven't responded to her email right yet, and she's right. But it, everything it does feel overwhelming. It feels overwhelming to even decide to pick with two episodes a week. What on earth we're going to talk about? Because the options, you know, we're not a daily show. It's just it's so much. There is so much. But I I do think it's important to focus on the human the human costs that drive so much of the passion the anti-war effort and has done so historically so i appreciate you sharing the story of your family member with us tom and thank you for
3: did you did you look up ray mcgovern no you have to look up ray i mean he, he he literally he had his arm broken when he was protesting against hillary clinton he he you don't know ray mcgovern he's a great he would go on your show and he would talk about russia he was an expert he was reagan's and bush's um he was in the CIA. He was there. He gave a daily um, intelligence briefing to the president. He, he's he's in Washington D.C. Ray McGovern. He's a Veterans for uh, Sanity or intelligence. Yeah,
0: I see. I see it now. I've pulled it up, and I really do appreciate that recommendation, I watched it Tom. Just because
3: he's a great man, and uh, and I think he deserves. And I think he'd be great be great on one of your shows. But anyhow, Thanks. thank you. So-
0: I, I appreciate the recommendation, Tom. I appreciate it very much. Thank you. Thank you. Um, We've been joined by the great Matt Brunig.
4: Hi, Brianna. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing very well. I'm really glad you appeared at this moment, too, because we have Kusha coming up as a caller, and I know that he always asks very pointed and specific questions, the likes of which I am not qualified to answer when it comes to how to nationalize. I am just an interviewer, a humble interviewer who brings on experts like yourself. So I'm glad you're here to help me parry whatever Kush is about to ask. Kushi, what's on your mind this evening? <laughs> That's
2: very kind of you, Brianna. I hope you have a great evening. And if I can just preface, I would highly encourage you to debate Charlie Kirk. I think one of the big mistakes Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez did was not debating Ben Shapiro, was not debating Marjorie Taylor Greene. If she has the stronger political positions, which I believe many of the left-wing ones are, she should expose them for being charlatans and frauds and manipulators and deceptive and duplicitous. So I encourage you, I know you're capable, I know you can be firm, strong, polite, civil, you should debate Charlie Kirk. I think you do a much better job than, who is it, Bosch who did it? Please do it. Please don't let Bosch debate (laughs) Charlie Kirk.
0: The issue for me is more that first of all, the debate format, I think is really silly. I think it's I'm sorry. it's like so high school boy nonsense. Like we can have a conversation without having to bill everything like it's a dick slinging contest. Sure, 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 sure. <laughs> Look, I just want you to share your <laughs> so like I- so for like Andrew Sullivan, like he invited mm-hmm. me on his show. I invited him on my show. We had two conversations, and I felt it was constructive. And same with Glenn Lowry, like it mm-hmm. wasn't like a debate. you know, i'm not I'm not there to, you know, Pone anyone or whatever the hell, do you know what I mean? It was great. Yeah, and and I and I so my only my hesitation is more format, and also you know the good faith bad faith question. Sure. And you know, I also the other the one other thing is that people always want to debate random black people about race. (laughs) And it's like, if you really wanted to have a debate about race, you should get some sociologists who studied all these things, not me, who's just going to read some Kianga Yamada Taylor article and then try to remember it and talk back to you. Like there are people who do this professionally and are, have expertise, but some combination of them not wanting to talk to the real experts and also the real experts not feeling like they should waste their time on these kind of performative things means that those those pairings, which I think would be really useful pairings, you know, the Cornell West of the world and the – Mm-hmm. You know the um, what's her face, uh, uh, New Jim Crow, uh, Michelle Alexander's of the world, and the people who've like spent their whole life devoted to this kind of scholarship. They they would be able to have a much more substantive conversation, um, and uh, it frustrates me that me and any mistakes that I might make might be considered to be definitive on whether or not these scholastic questions have been answered, you know, one way or the other. That's, that's my only other hesitation.
2: Don't overestimate your ability to make mistakes. You definitely, it, I, I, again, I would affirm that you're very capable. And further, Cornel West is a good example of someone who constantly does it with his good friend Robert George, who's a right-wing mm. that's mm. uh, That said, though, I was, I'd like to talk about the, the point of nationalization because it's a very important question, and I'm glad you brought Matt in. Uh, I saw that clip that you shared earlier today as well. So what I'm really concerned about when it comes to nationalization is it was responsible in large part for the downslide of the Soviet Union. Now, one may say to me like, oh, come on, it was in the very beginning and there was a war and it was a war in which the United States sent like, what was it, over 10,000 troops, like 11,000 troops. Japan sent 70,000 troops. The UK sent like 59,000 troops. France sent... Fifty over fifty thousand troops, and they went in there and they destroyed Russia in its infancy, and they went support the nationalists and czarists and so on. But at the same time, when Lenin moved the economy from war communism to the new economic policy or NEP as it was known as, that's when he incorporated what he even recognized as quote a free market and capitalism, uh, both subject to state control end quote. So he he did that he made that decision. Now, at the same time, he had a lot of adverse circumstances in the sense that there were a lot of peasants who were very resistant to implementing the changes, hoarding grains, hoarding resources at a time when, for instance, like I think modern day St. Petersburg and Moscow were a few of like the industrial powerhouses and the rest was a lot of rural area with peasants who didn't have the same mindset. They were as if you look at there's a conversation on YouTube uh, in which uh, Bertrand Russell, the British mathematician and philosopher, is talking about when he met Lenin, when he went to the Soviet Union. And he talks about how Lenin, uh, Bertrand Russell says, like, you claim to be implementing a form of socialism in your government, but it seems to me that it's a form of peasant proprietorship. And then Lenin laughs in the video, uh, Russell mocks the laugh, or he imitates it, and talks about how Lenin says that, Well, he strung like one set of peasants against the other peasants, the rich peasants against the poor peasants and had them hanged, which is true. Lenin has carried out something called the hanging order in which he said to hang no less than 100 kulaks. The reason I want to mention this background is that nationalization was one mechanism that the Soviet Union used. Lenin was a pioneer of that never necessarily helped out. It only just got capitalism to be under the state's control. And if you take a look at countries like China... They've implemented like a modern day, like Xi Jinping's China is like the modern day, updated form of the new economic policy, as far as I can understand. If you look at the wealth expansion in China that happened over like the past 20, 30, 40, 50, whatever years from Mao Zedong's time till now, you notice an immense explosion of wealth. Uh, If you look at the World Population Review their billionaires by country for 2022, you see that China has 698 billionaires. That's including Hong Kong and whatnot, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and also mainland China, of course. But and take a look at the US, I think it's like 724. China's not too far off and they've grown their billionaires very rapidly, probably even more quickly than the United States. Uh, I'm not certain about that, but it seems that way. At the same time, though, the billionaires in China, they don't have the same say when it comes to complete control of um their own livelihood, I would say. So for instance, there was an article in Forbes published in 2011 by Ray, I forgot his name, Ray Knowles or something. Anyhow, Ray something, July 25th, 2011. And he talks about how, quote, China Daily reported Friday that unnatural deaths have taken the lives of 72 mainland billionaires over the past eight years, end quote. And he says, I'm gonna conclude on this. I'd love to hear your analysis on this nationalization, the state capitalism and the troubles that come with it. And then also in the article, he wrote, writes that, quote, according to China Daily, 15 were murdered, 17 committed suicides, 7 died from accidents and 19 died from illnesses. Oh, yes. And 14 were executed. End quote. In contrast, we don't see that in the U.S. We had like Epstein was maybe the only billionaire who I think, like, you know, killed hmm. himself or was. I don't know. I have no clue. I have no clue. But it's not the same way in the U.S. where the billionaires live. Now, I don't believe in the death penalty at all. I want it abolished. But this is interesting in how china uses it for its state capitalism i'd love to hear yours and matt's thoughts thank you very much So,
0: Matt, what do you make of this argument i mean this is this is an argument that you anticipate getting when you start talking about these things that it just you know you just get the potential for a a kind of state despotism because everything's under the state control what do you say to that
4: yeah so you know what we're talking about here are state-owned enterprises and a state owner can behave badly um, a pro- just as private owners can behave badly <laughs> the private owners are also um, as he's kind of getting at with China though um, maybe indirectly here um, private owners are also can also be under the thumb of the state um, in a way to where it may not be formally state-owned but if you're in a state where you can kind of extrajudicially uh, knock off some uh, private billionaires who are maybe not going, going with the show uh you know how, how is that any different either um so the point of uh you know my, my so state ownership only i guess the point that the sort of socialists would make is uh, state ownership along with a democratic uh, liberal democratic state right where the people vote and the state is uh, uh, representative of the people, responsive to the people, that that's the structure you want. Um, And so that's obviously not what we have necessarily, obviously, in China or the Soviet Union. Historically, I would say we do have that in the Nordic nations at the moment, which do, do feature a very high level of state owned enterprises. Now, the case for nationalizing big oil is also a unique case. It's not this just normal, hey, state-owned enterprises are great because now the public owns them and we get to collect the dividends and we get to have a little more say over them and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. The case that I I made for it, um, and I think Johanna makes a similar case, so she makes multiple cases for it, is related to the climate change situation, which is very unique, right? That's not the case in a lot of industries where you have this industry that needs to be put into decline, but that uh, we can't end overnight. And so how do you manage that situation? And the idea is that private capital is not in the business of propping up industries that are in decline, (laughs) so we could run into a situation we are arguably running into the situation right now where private capital is not willing to fund these oil companies um to an appropriate level to allow them to do the kind of exploration and drilling that we currently need because they don't see a long-term future a long-term profitab- profitable, profitable uh, enterprise there
8: mm.
4: and so it's a kind of a mismatch thing like how do you get private capital to go into something that we want to keep around for another like 10 years and then end it entirely, you know?
0: Well, are you concerned? I mean, given those incentives that exist right now, would you be concerned about a world where, let's say, you know, there's a Trump presidency that comes after the privatization or the, sorry, the nationalization and they either undo everything, they fully support and it's basically an excuse for them to spend more money and subsidize more these industries and keep it going longer or a situation where it's like a biden frankly and because of the pressure to bring down oil costs and become energy independent and all these kinds of things in this uh, geopolitical context you also get the opposite outcome that we want from nationalization so we get we're getting a ramping up instead of a ramping down and this is one place where privatization where the fact of the, of the market saying actually the oil isn't sustainable would get us a, a quicker ramping down than nationalization.
4: Well, so, so I'm not sure that we're getting a quicker ramping down though. Right. I think what we're getting is a massive freak out. Uh, that's gonna tank uh, the electoral system and put it in control of Republicans, who are for sure not gonna deal with climate change, even if Democrats probably also won't. Uh, but like even more for sure. Uh, so that's an even bigger issue. You know what I mean? Like if we can't keep the price of oil like on a nice glide path as we uh, get ourselves to energy independence, then we're gonna get like they're just gonna you're gonna get wrecked uh in the elections i mean uh, i don't know people hey i went to texas uh last weekend gas mm-hmm. prices gas that's all i want to talk about gas prices gas prices gas prices uh that seems to be what's tanking uh biden's election now you're right of course that the state owner you know can depending on you know who's in power it, it, you know they can change the agenda of of the company i i, I personally say that that's a good thing right because um the state, you know, that's democracy. And that's what we But, but want. if we believe,
0: I mean, but, the point I think is that the state, the state owner can be very, very bad. And it is the same people who have been fighting the Green New Deal in both parties this whole time who would be the state owner. Right. So how do the we. State, the state yeah, owner
4: could be bad, um, but the state owner, what I guess the point I would make here is the state owner is the only owner that could potentially manage a nice, smooth decline. A private owner, I don't think could do that because they're not going to be able, maybe put it this way, right? The only reason the oil companies are going to go out is because of state action on some level, whether it's mm-hmm. regulation or whatever, right? Like mm-hmm. it's it's the it's fear that, uh, like at least for people who are concerned about long-term stuff, it's the fear of what they call stranded assets that drives ca- capital out of this because they're thinking... Shit, I'm gonna build all these oil rigs and drill all these holes and then all that money I poured into it, all that asset, all that all that physical capital I've built up to like make this work is just gonna be turned off overnight by the state through this through climate regulation, right? That's that's the fear is that these assets they're investing in are gonna get stranded by the state, by state regulation. And if you get to the point where that's not credible, because well no, we have a new uh, president in town and we think that there's going to be like a durable um, position against this, then they're going to investigate. You know? yeah. So it's, re- it's, it's really an issue of like the regulation is going if, to – if it's effective, it's going to scare people off. It's going to scare them off too quickly. So we need to like both regulate and make sure it doesn't happen too quickly or else you get economic kind of chaos. If, if I
2: may respond to Matt's point just now, and I think Brianna, she, she, put, she put out a point earlier that I think is very important in, in a response to Matt right now, which is she was essentially talking about how there's a right-wing point, that democracy is like the least worst system of governing. And that's from Churchill, if I'm not mistaken, Winston Churchill, the mass-murdering British imperialist who <laughs> starved and killed millions of Indian, precious Indian people. Is
0: that
2: his epitaph?
0: Is is that that what they put on his tombstone?
2: I hope. Sorry, go ahead. Sure. But I think what, what, based on what Brianna was saying, she used that framework to say, like, that's how I feel about government. I don't necessarily think about government that way. I think what Matt said about, like, the government, the state could do terrible things is how I see it. That the government's just a tool, it's a mechanism, like hammers or wrenches or screwdrivers or pliers or scissors or hand saws you could torture people with them and kill them or you could build homes and and furniture and and you know build desks and you could do all sorts of positive things with them so that's how i view it in that sense now further matt was essentially putting it in this binary of maybe he's not and maybe i'm misunderstanding the way he's presenting it but he was saying the state owner could potentially be the one to provide a nice, smooth decline when it comes to the oil crisis, the energy crisis, the climate chaos. Not that it can't be. I'm not saying the state can't be. But I think what's more important for me is, and I think this is what Professor Richard Wolf does, is reject the binary that it has to be like a state ownership or like you just have a bunch of billionaires like, you know, rigging the entire system for themselves and controlling the state for themselves. Mm-hmm. I think what I like the most is Professor Richard Wolff's model that it should be the employer-employee relationship needs to be eliminated such that the worker council system has to be implemented, which is what Soviet means. If I'm not mistaken, Soviet means like council. And that's like the left-wing branch that I identify with the most, like the Rosa Luxemburgs and the Anton Panakek's and the Manzarek, those who want the worker ownership. And so if I may just give this example, I'd like Matt to wrestle with if possible, is the fact that you look at the period in the Soviet Union Right before this, Krons, uh, before this new economic policy was implemented by Lenin, it was very much, I believe, a response to the Kronstadt rebellion. I don't know how familiar you are with it, but it was when a bunch of sailors, who even Trotsky called them the, quote, adornment and pride of the revolution, end quote, when they rebelled and their demands were literally the promise of the Soviets, the Bolsheviks, Lenin and Trotsky and so on. And just like how people say, like, oh, Biden, them didn't keep their word. Of course, Biden and Lenin are completely different people, They're completely different. I'm not equating them. I don't like the allegations of, you know, equating people in that sense. But what, in the sense that the, the workers, there were sailors and other laborers in Kronstadt, they said, let's do what you promise. Let's reduce the influence of the Bolsheviks such that we have more Soviet councils such that the workers can make more uh, decisions in their own workplaces and daily lives. We have more civil rights and whatnot. That's why Lenin said, quote, this was, a, quote, undoubtedly more dangerous than Denikin, Udenich, and Kolchak combined. Other, end quote. Those are all the other many other big rebellions he faced. And so I think that's what I'd like to see most. Like, it's not just if you have state ownership. Like, the of probably has a bunch of state-owned, like, companies. But it's so miserable over there. People live under sexual apartheid. People get tortured left and right. Same thing like in you know many other countries, like what Stalin's Soviet Union was, and so on. I think what's most important is the democracy in the workplace. And I think what I'd like to see when Brianna was talking about, she mentioned like a writer, if I'm not too, um, if I'm not mistaken, that she read a work of and said, This person was putting out pragmatic, step by step, item by item solutions. And we want something actionable and tangible. What I'd most like to see from the left. Is creating that type of blueprint, item by item, for what council a left wing council movement looks like. I think that would provide some needed benefit instead of just imagining like worker ownership, but outlining it very clearly. I'd like to know yours and Matt's responses. That'd be very, very nice. Yeah. So,
4: <laughs> so you, you know, I, I see now that you you want to have a debate about worker co ops versus state owned enterprises. And don't get me wrong, I love that debate, and I can talk about it if you're interested in it, but in the context of oil, are you proposing the alternative is to make, for example, Exxon a worker co-op and then annihilate it?
2: That's a, no, that's an important question, Matt. I'm not just saying I – think, I think you raise an important point that needs qualification. I'm not just saying you go into every situation. Worker co-op is like the uh, – what's the company called? McKinsey, like the consulting group. Everything has its own McKinsey patent. Format. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying generally speaking. But, of course, in the case of oil where and gas, where there's a climate crisis, I believe foremost there has to be a change made to a renewable energy uh, infrastructure around the world through solar energy, wind energy, uh, geothermal energy, hydroelectric power, hydrogen fuel cell, so on and so forth. And yes, pragmatically, of course, for the saving the world, saving the hundreds of millions of climate refugees that are going to be created in Indonesia and Bangladesh and India and China and Japan and you name it. Of course, one needs to immediately change that. I'm not saying, oh, well, we got to go through worker co-op first and then nationalize. No, no, do no. whatever it takes to end this exploitation of this natural resource that destroys the planet that's what my answer to you right there would be i'm not you know just giving an answer just for the sake of oh we got to keep it through this formula you know
4: right yeah okay so in the narrow context of is it prudent climate policy and economic stabilization policy to nationalize these oil companies you're not saying that no the alternative would be worker co-ops because that doesn't really address the problem, right? We'll make it a worker co-op, and then we'll manage the decline and eliminate all the workers' wealth in the process because their wealth would be then tied up in the equity of a firm that we're trying to to bring to zero. I I get that. So if you want to talk about the general question, right, worker co-ops versus state-owned enterprises, there's, of course, a lot of objections that people will make about worker co-ops, many of which I find persuasive, right? Mm, So one... So one is that the worker cops would generate a significant amount of inequality in the society because different firms have different capital intensities. Mm. And so if what you're basically saying is all the workers in a given firm are going to be entitled to both their wages and what is now the profit of that firm, some firms are massively more profitable than others Mm -hmm. because the profit is driven in part by the capital intensity of the industry. Mm-hmm. So if you look at, for example, Walmart, profit per worker in Walmart, like if you take their full profit and divide it by the number of employees, it's in the like four to $5,000 range or something like that. If you go to some of the higher profit per worker companies, and we know because the SEC has, has forced companies to release this data for like the last five or six years, at the high end, there are companies that have profits in the four million dollars per worker. Uh,
8: what level. kind of companies what,
2: like are Microsoft. Those? Microsoft probably, right? Like Microsoft <clears throat>
4: These are uh, these are REITs, so uh, it'll be companies oh, really? like yeah the ones that manage for example um, logistical warehouses. Like Berkshire uh, Hathaway
2: probably too, right?
4: I think I think one of them's called Vornado. Um, one of them's called Prologis. Um there's a variety of them, and, and mostly they're involved in real estate management of one sort or another. But that's just on the extreme end. Of course, I don't know what Facebook's is, but it's probably hundreds of thousands of dollars per worker because um, they don't have that many workers. They have, you know, a huge reach. And so, you know, <laughs> is that the, in, a, in, a sta- in a world of, of state-owned enterprises or, or a social wealth fund, which is another related idea that I support, all of that profit comes into the central fund and then it can be dispersed or used, you know, for the benefit of society as a whole. Oh, so like
2: that's that. says, right? That's what Giannis Barfakis says, correct?
4: Yes, he is a supporter of the Social Wealth Fund um, and his DM25 movement. Um, so that's the idea, it's like, that's one point people make. Mm-hmm. Another point people will make is that um, firm, firm boundaries, the boundaries between companies is kind of flexible and can be manipulated pretty easily. So here's a good example. Mm-hmm. Let's say Google and Twitter, um, you know, they have their corporate offices. And as I understand it, they have cafeterias, really nice cafeterias in these offices. Um, if Google decides to run its cafeteria in-house, then those cafeteria workers are employees of Google, right? And so they're Involved in the Google entity, they would be part of the Google worker co-op, the, the replacement, right? Mm-hmm. If Twitter decides we're going to actually uh, hire a catering company to run mm-hmm. our um, cafeteria, mm-hmm. those workers are employees of the catering company. They're not employees of Twitter. I and see. that catering company might have lots of different locations like Aramark does. It's a very common model. And so you wind up with these very arbitrary results mm-hmm. based on... These kinds of decisions, um, and that's a similar point I think to the capital intensity point. But you know, and, and what what people will do naturally, of course, is they'll start being very selective about how they construct mm-hmm. their firm. You know, I don't think uh, once the, the co-op rules are in place, that Google is necessarily going to have the cafeteria workers be Google employees. It probably would outsource it to Aramark or something like that. And that's just to say, you you, you know. It's not as clear cut as you would like to think that, oh, everybody here works for this company. You can mix and match a formal employers all day long. Um, and so once again, the, the state-owned enterprise or the social wealth fund model solves that problem because regardless of which firm a person is organized in, the profit of that firm goes up to the central fund and then it can be, good, can be used for the benefit of everyone. Um, there are other issues as well. Workers don't actually stay at the same company that long. Um mm-hmm. like we yeah. like to ma- oh it's your company, it's your company. Where the the average worker has had eleven different jobs by the time that they're like fifty. Mm-hmm. Um so what what does that mean? You know, you go into a company, and what you're like a member, you vote, who who cares, right? People are just hopping to new companies to get when they're getting promotions or new job opportunities or stuff like that. So what it, So what investment do people really have in the specific mm-hmm. company they happen to be working for? I think people have investments oftentimes in the sector they're working for mm-hmm. in their profession, right? Because they usually go from one job to another within the specific profession, but they're yeah. hopping firm to firm to firm to firm. And so what then does it make sense to make them temporary owners? You're of right. a company that they're going to, de- you know. So I mean, you could go on and on here, but think I, maybe I you should have Richard Wolf on and just talk. To, I know he's a big yeah. You
0: know. Yeah, we should, be, but I, I, was, I do want to put a fine point because It seemed to me like you were asking a question also, though, about how to resist the mm. negative incentives that exist for anyone, whether it's a private ownership or public ownership. Mm. In in a in a in a in a space where our politics are so driven by the same incentives that the private ownership are. So when there's so much corporate capture, where there's incentives for individual politicians to be making money for their for the continuation of these industries, which are detrimental to our environment and to our national security interests. I mean, are there correct me if I'm wrong, Kushi, but it seemed like your your question was about how to keep this from going the way of you know, Lenin's Russia. The well-
2: well, I would say like in terms of your summation of what I was saying, I think what Lenin's Russia had a very unique circumstance with the Civil War and being invaded. Of course, war plays a big part in economics, and I don't think it should be separated. But further, what I would say is that I think Matt raises some really valuable points that really helped me reevaluate uh, my position, not necessarily completely moving away from it, but he raises questions that I needed to hear. Uh, Very good points about temporary um, time at at a firm and so on, Um, because he's right. And in terms of the investment people have in their employers. But one thing that's still it's hard for me to like when Brianna was talking about when you Brianna were talking about like, oh, how right wingers like Charlie Kirk and so on. And Thomas Sowell was like the king of this. Milton Friedman was the king of this. Ayn Rand was the queen of this. They just break your back over the fact that, like, big government, big government, big government, you wanna make it a state, big government, big government. And it's true, they'll say it because then they can point to Mao, they can point to uh, Stalin, they can point to, like, um, Enver Hoxha in Albania or Nikolai Ceaușescu in Romania and be like, see, 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 look at all the blood on their hands. And then you're like, oh my goodness, well, yeah. But then, and then one could say, like, oh, well, look at all these people who tried to come through the government. And they were very decent. They were like Olaf Palm in Sweden. I mean, Matt mentioned like the Nordic countries. And Olaf Palm was one of the best, I think, in my view, like one of the best leaders in the at least uh, later part of the 20th century. He was one of the most seriously committed to ending uh, the potential for thermonuclear destruction or like Salvador Allende in Chile. Also, he tried to do the same thing through the state, but he was not like a mass murderer at all. He was the one who had to commit suicide when Kissinger and Nixon led their coup d'etat, CIA coup d'etat there. But at the same time, like I think what, how you were characterizing my point, Brianna, which I would probably agree with, is the fact that I'd want to see a check, even if it's a state or a private enterprise, against the use of power for murder, for torture, for annihilation for genocide well,
0: or even just in this oil context you know there are corporate charters that constrain the direction broadly of a company i, I would just like to see us say we're going to nationalize this with the purpose at very least to ramping it down because i can say we'll renationalize it and do not in fact ramp it down depending mm-hmm. on what the administration yes.
2: is agreed i agree with that too yeah, uh, I like
0: could- to
2: hold- yeah it's, it's totally possible it's totally possible that they don't do that
4: um but you also have to ask yourself why wouldn't they do that And one reason would be, I think the specific reason why a nationalized company wouldn't do that, or this is what people think, is, well, they love those dividends, right? You get those Mm. dividends in, and the (laughs) money comes into the state, and then they get to spend it to help people. But Mm. if you're operating on the assumption that the government loves revenue because it wants to help people, well, if it wants to help people, then it's going to want to stop climate change also, you know what I mean? but the the problem with climate
0: change is that it's this it's the intangible
4: the the alternative because i think it's important to be very like specific about that particular argument the alternative is and i looked this up the other day something like 50 billion dollars a year in profits for like the top 10 u.s oil companies which control almost all of it right um so the alternative so the question is would it be better to have that 50 billion dollars flow into the u.s treasury in which case some would argue Oh, now the government loves that revenue and they can't give it up, so they don't want to wind it down. Or would it be rather, better to have that $50 billion deposited into the uh, accounts of, you know, a few million rich Americans? Mm. And then when it's put in their accounts, then we gotta, it's, much, it's much easier to get the job done. Um, and I, I, I don't know. It may, I don't know which one of them is true. But think about your own theory of politics here, and, and ask yourself, you know, if you're the kind of person who thinks the government is on the lookout for those individuals, the kind of individuals who are getting that fifty billion now in their uh, personal accounts every year, then it's not good to have it in their accounts. now you got millions of affluent people looking to keep the keep the thing going. Whereas if mm-hmm. you put in the treasury, they don't care anymore. It means mm-hmm. nothing to them.
8: Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, well, so this that's a is... way of
4: neutralizing political opposition, potentially.
2: This has been wonderful. Thank you yeah. so much. This is very rich. Thank, thank, you,
0: right, thank you, Matt. And thank you, Kusha, for asking all of those insightful questions.
2: I really appreciate all the time that you've allotted me. It's very kind of you, Brianna. And thank you so much, Matt. No wonder Brianna introduced you as an expert. Of course, I've seen your work before, and it was really nice to hear you elaborate.
0: That's the best. I'm externalizing all of my um, my my brain power, rather appropriating other the brain power of others. I'm gonna skip around in this queue a little bit and try to get some new faces in here. Um, how about Rena? Unmute yourself and let oh, oh are you there? Okay. Yeah. Unmute yourself and let us know what's on your mind tonight. Rena, did you step away from the phone? Because you thought I'm so far in the back. I'm never gonna get to the front. I'm just gonna be a sleepy puppy here in this avatar. I get that. I get that. But I'm gonna have to move on to Brayden. I don't think I've seen anyone here before. What's on your mind this evening, Brayden? Am I catching you off guard? Am I going too far back in the queue? Do I have to aim for a middle? Ground? Oh my god, uh, Brianna! Oh my god! Oh my god, <laughs> Brianna! Oh my god! Oh, I'm so sorry. I was waiting in
1: line, talking to I was gonna get goodbye, neighbor. Sorry, goodbye, Jen. Um, Brianna, I'm sorry. I, I'm gonna. Um, hey, i, I so a longtime listener to the podcast itself and to Colin. And I've been listening to you say you talk to multiple. I'm not going to call anyone out, but I've, I've heard you say to people, What are actionable items that we can help for on the left? And I'm a member of the Poor People's Campaign, mm. I, and we have asked. Oh my God! I'm so sorry. I was—I didn't know I was this quick and loud. I was talking to a neighbor. <laughs> oh my God! I wasn't talking to you. Well, I'm yeah, sorry that. to
0: Jen. I can't believe I've—I've—I've I've, I've broken off what I'm sure was very witty repartee. Oh with no! Jen. We were
1: talking about edibles. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, she was asking me a good. We uh, just opened, yeah, I, we live in New York City, and they just opened up the. Um, they just legalized their, and or they legalized it end of last year, but it just opened up. And so there's a shopping neighbor, whatever. <laughs> uh, no, oh my god, oh my god, I can't believe it because we we have asks, and I have like tangi- We have tangible things that we are trying to get done, and we have asks that can be done. It is not about. Yes, we are organizing, but we, there are, we have specific, you know, asks about organizing.
0: So Brandon, do you want to hit me with some of them now? Because I will tell you, I've reached out to uh, Reverend Barber and... At one point, some months ago, I was dialoguing with someone who was trying to get him on, and then the the line kind of went cold, and I'm not sure what happened there. But I would love to have him on the show, and if not him, somebody else in the organization.
1: That would be awesome. I can um I, I am not a national um organizer, and by that, so the Poor People's Campaign is um national, um states um so national co chair So it's Reverend Barber, and then also Reverend Liz D O'Harris, um, and then it's state. Uh, co-chairs, we've got about 40-odd states, um, tri-chairs uh, under tr- state tri-chairs are um, uh, state coordinating committees and then regional committees in various states um, and then, you know, just various regions under that. Um, so, I, you know, I, I, I will send some information to somebody at National that I, I do know that I have contact with me personally, I, you know, I am not in contact personally with Barbara Raymond and once when I went to Bernie Sanders office uh, last October where I threw up in the bathroom. Oh, <laughs> I'm Bri- so nervous.
0: <laughs> you are a shining light, Raiden, and you have cracked me up this evening multiple times. So I'm very glad I picked you from the back of the queue. and I, I hope I hear from you soon.
1: But yeah, so we're, so we're mobilizing towards June 18th. Um okay. We've had a lot, so I'm just going to nip this in the bud. Um, we've had a lot of people ask, "Is that a Juneteenth yeah. um, date?" Um, as far as I know, n- no. Now that doesn't mean we don't support June, uh Juneteenth, um, and that doesn't mean that you know maybe it's not. I, just, as far as I know, it's it, we have been trying this date for three years in a or like trying this like weekend three years mm-hmm. in a row with COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, this is going to be. In our opinion, and in our organization and our coalition building, what we hope to be the largest mobilization on Washington, on the National Mall, of poor and low-wealth people. So that includes people who are, maybe they're not poor yet, but they are one $400 emergency away from being in the depths of poverty. This will be the largest mobilization of these individuals in a generation um. Oh my God, I can't believe it. I'm...
0: So, so t- t- can you tell me a little bit more about um how how this is happening? Because that's a that's a very bold, it ambitious,
1: and it's many years in the making. You know this from mm. so speaking with Reverend Barber. Yeah. So, um, I guess I'll um I, I don't want to take up too much time, but um, so we believe um in the poor people's campaign and fighting. Uh, we know that uh, racism cannot be ended without ending ecological Ecological devastation, we know that ending poverty can't be done without ending the war economy. We have five interlocking injustices um, that we believe are the uh, essential to um, ending the American empire. And those are racism, poverty, ecological devastation, the war economy, and the false moral narrative of Christian nationalism. Now, some people can kind of find that funny because you know our two co-chairs are reverends, but we mm-hmm. know that Christian nationalism um is very different than you know do, uh, other people's face. That is a it's a white nationalist um activity. So we are mobilizing towards June eighteenth. And the most important part of this is um it really you know that one day it's a declaration on that one day, but really it's the work going towards that and the work after. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know the real work starts on June nineteenth. If we can but, really, but I'm,
0: just, I'm just curious, Brandon. Like, I, I'm curious how it. Is, I mean, do you really anticipate? You know, how many people do you oh, think yes. you're going to be able to get to the mall?
1: I, I'm not going. I, I can't comment. I I don't want to get in trouble. I, I'm not going to comment on that. Uh, but I will say, <laughs> what do you mean you don't want to get in trouble? Because well, you don't want to put numbers out before oh, I you see, know. I see. Yeah, but I mean, we do anticipate this being the largest. Um, or at least in this generation, or at least in the past 20 years, the largest mobilization on the mall um, in a long time.
0: Was there? Do um, you know if there was any thought about coordinating with the um, student debt people? Um, I don't. For th- May first. So, okay,
1: so let me tell you. So my job, right? Um, I'm actually currently. So I've been. I've. Been, I'm a member of multiple coordinating committees in New York State. Um, and I live in the city. Um, currently, right now, I am part-time contracted because they have paid out um, some part-time organizers um, all across the country in our 40-some um, states to, you know, over from February to June. Um, and we are all tasked with um, meeting with new people. This one I literally, I, I, I'm literally billing this because I've been sitting in the queue because i like, I have to, I have to talk to you Um so we are tasked with finding people so i i can go in the new york city ER, we have like a command center where we have all of the orgs that even our just volunteers are connected with um i don't know but i would love that yes we are like this is a revolution we are rev- and people have a really um there's a lot of misconceptions about the poor people's campaign it is a revolutionary organization um and um or organism um, so yeah, I so I'll, I'll just shut up because well, no, I,
0: I would love to hear more about that. I really truly would, because I I rhetorically am obsessed with the way that Reverend Barber frames everything, and the work that he does. And I would love to have a conversation about this action and also could I come on? I, I absolutely come on the show. Look, can we can I come on the show? I would I would love that. But also, like, you've already you know, I want someone who can kind of speak authori- authoritatively. I know you don't I, want to I can have
1: a come on from New York state.
0: Let, let's talk about it. Put let's um, you can we can DM in the in the DM me it, after that, this episode. OK, cool. I will continue to talk about it. But I really would like to I would like to have a conversation about the posture that the organization also. Okay, takes y- to you asked me, though, no, because
1: I got too excited now. So you asked me questions and I, now I'm kind of calmed down. I no,
0: can't. no, no, no. You're, you're fine. You're fine. I want to skip back a little bit to the, since we have Matt here, so we can answer some of yeah. these um, questions and get back on track a little bit. But let's let sideline. And definitely we need to get uh, the Reverend Barber on on the program. So I'm so glad that you called in. And I'm sorry to interrupt from you and Jan. And congratulations on New York having legalized uh, marijuana.
1: <laughs> oh, my goodness! So I'll message you and we'll, we'll try to get something set up.
0: Perfect. All right. Oh take my God! Care, Thank Brian. you so much, Brianna. <laughs> Have a,
1: oh my God! I love you, and I'm going to keep you You are
0: so sweet. Thank you. Keep the vape.
1: Bye. Bye
0: bye. Uh, all right. Let's try a uh, Celi Cele. What's on your mind this evening? Hi.
9: Hi. Uh, it was only one thing, but then people started talking, and it's adding. <laughs> uh, yeah, one thing, uh, with respect of the, the marches that they are organizing, there's a, a great thing that is going against or marching against all those things together because you show mm-hmm. numbers. Mm-hmm. But sometimes there's also a good thing uh, to, to do things that, are going, that the government can give to you. Mm-hmm. For instance, I don't know. I, sometimes it's just a, a little group. Uh, Madres de Plaza de Mayo, you know who they were. Well, who? Who? I'm sorry. Who was that? Las Madres de Plaza de Mayo, the Mothers of Plaza de Mayo.
8: Mm-hmm.
9: Uh, no. During no. the, well, they were they, they were the mothers of the disappeared in during the coup in Argentina and during the Queen Argentina, they used to go to the Plaza de Mayo and circle. And every time they would take one of them, they would run, go behind her and get into the station, the police station and start praying for mm-hmm. an hour, two hours, five hours. And they got, some were dead at the beginning, but sometimes it's more annoying that, than oh, the, the marches for the abortion. We also got that from not not. It wasn't violent, but uh, and the were arrest because they, they, if someone got arrested, they will go and you know keep it and keep it until they release it. Because mm-hmm. I think you you have a, a lot of arrested people with a lot of penalties very high or not?
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I I take your point. And I'm not necessarily even saying, you know, you have to or you should link up with the student debt people. I'm just curious whether there's been any conversation about that since there are these kind of similarly timed events. And I know the student debt folks are hoping to have mass mobilization and wondering if they're working with the um, Poor People's Campaign at all, even if they're two separate events. But what was did you have an original question?
9: Yeah. No, the other thing was Mm -hmm. the, the, the well, they were talking about. The oil, mm-hmm. yes, the oil, uh, the privatisations of oil are not as simple as the first uh, speaker said or the recording you put, because there are consequences after that. You have to, well, you probably know that the after that the the companies or the the states that the, where the companies were can come after you, even they can sell um, to hedge funds right before. Uh, the, 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 because the, the headphones would buy it, knowing that the state's is gonna take it because they will go to judge to um, to court and win it anyway because they would would wait twenty thirty years they don't care. And... So
0: you're saying that you know if it becomes you know kind of uh, public knowledge or there's you know political pressure building for nationalization that where you're gonna get is
9: no, no other I, people I grabbing. Think- no, so, I say nationalize it mm-hmm. nationalize it, but when you nationalize it, you, you don 't always give the whole company to the state you don 't always mm-hmm. take the whole company. You take the majority
8: mm-hmm.
9: and then there are investors
0: mm-hmm.
9: and they they are, they are, they are, they are you're not the only ones have yeah.
0: to- so we talked about this a little on the podcast, Matt, what do you have to say to that strategically we didn 't we didn't talk about whether one should in the case of in this case of, of nationalizing the oil industry it should be entirely owned by the government as opposed to some of the other examples we talked about on the episode, like uh, GM in 2008, what would you recommend?
4: I would like to see an entirely own again, in this case, because part of what we're trying to do here is get all the other actors out of the, uh, you know, off the field. <laughs> Cause if you have other owners in play, then you run the risk of, shareholder lawsuits and things of that nature right a 51 percent owner has a lot of power for sure but they don't have total power because Mm. they can't act in ways that are like clearly discriminatory of existing shareholders you know like you can't just tank the company and say well i don't care about the other shareholders uh, Mm. because they have rights um that they can vindicate in court so you can just get them out of the game entirely then you don't have to deal with them and like I was saying in the in the, pri- and, the prior, sorry, call it, call it. a question
9: about that. How will how will you implement that? Because you will need companies that are already existing to to, to keep on drilling and stuff. You have. We are going to get investors, or you are going to give licenses.
4: How would you do what?
9: For instance, in Bolivia, when they did it, they they didn't have in the state the capacity to to keep doing it. You have to, in Argentina, when, when it was done a few years ago, uh, you have to give other other companies, not only because of the money that we didn't have, but because, the. I mean, you buy the... the you, you don't extirpate uh, the people or the managers, or you're going to start
0: from scratch. Oh, like who's going to run the company?
4: Oh uh, No, no, not starting a new company. Basically, just acquiring Exxon and acquiring... Uh, Chevron and acquiring, you know, BP. And,
0: but do you think, Matt, that some people would jump ship? I mean, do you think? you're still going to end up in this situation where there are people who are just not going to want to be part of the government-run country, and there there oh, might yeah. be some inability, you know, some some hiccups along the extraction or other kind of functioning of the company in the interim in the transition. Yeah. process?
4: Yeah, would workers in the firm leave? Some mm-hmm. top man, some top managers might leave, um, but. I don't think everyday workers, the normal workers, the production workers would leave. Um some executives would leave. But also remember you can pay the executives whatever you'd like. <laughs> if you need no. an executive to stay, you, you know
9: you But when you expropriate this stay, Chevron, you know. When when you expropriate Chevron, for instance, you're going to keep all the machines, all the, the structure.
4: Right. Yeah. Yes? And and in the short term, yes. And the idea is to slowly put it all out of business, but not yeah. quickly because we can't See, do it right away.
0: I think some of the confusion no, no. might be whether or not we're talking about just you know truly expropriate, like nationalizing without p- compensating people. Or... No, no, no. no. no,
9: no, no Extrocation is when you uh, say, well, this is a uh, property here and you're not using it or you're not investing what you're gaining and you're taking it away or there's something that is not... Going good with for it's not beneficial in the society and then with that excuse the, the government says okay I will buy it to you in a fair price but you have to sell it yeah that is, yeah that's what we're talking about that's what is this provision. but at least for for example what I say is sometimes they find a way to resell their actions to hedge funds or things like that and you keep on Oh, uh, I
4: see what you mean. You, they're going to offload the assets in the company. They're going to sell them ahead. to another company,
9: exactly. ahead of the,
4: So they won't that sell themselves way. the equity, but they'll sell the assets on their books. Exactly. I see. Yeah. Well, you know, who would they sell them to? <laughs> no, because it to? we're, we're nationalizing the whole
9: sector. that's you know, <laughs> interesting We did it um, <laughs> in my country. We did it, and I completely agree. But well, I, and you have the the advantages not to have a coup like it happened in Bolivia and stuff like that, because, you know.
0: Well, so I, tell, help me understand. Eh? Can you help, help explain to us a little, for those of us who don't know, what was the public reaction to that in Bolivia? How do, how do the people respond to that?
9: In Bolivia, mm-hmm. I'm from Argentina, but Bol- oh, okay. in Bolivia and Argentina, uh, no, it was the same, because um, there's the, the population is part in two, like half of it were great with great, great reception, and the other was, uh, especially in Bolivia, saying that they, I don't know the things that Kucha was saying that like all over that in the all of a sudden the state for for appropriating one company is going to become Venezuela or the Soviet Union or which is not realist you mm. we you have nor- Norway for instance that that or Norway and Nigeria they found oil almost at the same time and you know how did well how, how it was how it is okay Norway <laughs> is doing great and it's a state owned company but it works with other companies and when well, Nigeria is poor and the reaction in Bolivia was the the Higher the higher classes, yes, they they were against it. But eventually, uh, and eventually, uh, when Evo Morales started the policy, it 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 started benefiting them. So they kind of shut up. Mm. And until the last time when the coup, you know what what people were saying in Bolivia before this happened, the coup happened. uh, They were saying things like. The cholas, you know, the, the Aboriginal women, yes, yeah, so it was all right while we were having in the kitchen, but now they're in the parliament and things like that. It was... Mm. More, I mean, there's a, a thing about racism and in Argentina it happens the same. It's not racism because we, are, we look all the same, but there's a, uh, a class divide that, that makes that. But uh, they, they when, once it started benefiting them, they... Comply, Mm. but they will come in after. They will go okay. seeing what you can see in Fox or CNN. They will come after you like you were going to become China or. or Yeah, I mean that's
0: we talked about the the kind of public perception a little bit on the podcast, and the feeling is, I mean, it it is what it is. It's the the word using the word nationalization, nationalization or not. It is what it is. But there have been these instances where we've done it. Not called a nationalization, and the public has gone along with it and it has been fine. And not because the social pressure did the companies get returned, uh, get privatized again? Yeah, you know? but the,
9: but the government wanted to do that.
0: Exactly, exactly. Are, so talking about
9: forcing a- the government. And one, one question about that: Does mm-hmm. uh, is the public educated enough to understand when CNN and all that government-associated press are going to tell you that tell the public that you are going to become China if that happens absolutely
0: not the public is not it <laughs> That's part of why I wanted to do an episode like this and have the left to have more robust conversations of this kind you know this should just be the beginning because I was I was it was frustrating to look at the comment section even on the video on on YouTube and stuff and see a bunch of leftists saying well you know this is never going to happen Brianna don't you know Biden isn't into any of this and I'm like my friend literally the clip that you're responding to is me saying well of course Biden doesn't want to do any of this but Mm -hmm. thank you for mansplaining (laughs) this to me right now but like you know but that doesn't mean we shouldn't be talking about it because this is the active this is this is the work of public education as far as i'm concerned of course of course and i was
9: was asking before about water you can mm-hmm. compare it with it if you had privatized water if you have privatized oil oil is the base now until you become more clean energies it's the base of everything is how food moves how food are processes how it's not something that is um that an object of luxury. Mm-hmm. It's it's kind of it's not water, which is a right, but well, they they, they they in Chile they reverse that, and water is no longer a right; it's a commodity, mm.
0: and that's so screwed up. Is water a right here? I feel like I'm like you're talking about water as a right. I'm like that sounds good, but I feel like we don't have that. <laughs> no,
9: one of the, one of the guys uh, answered me that it was on the hands of the state. But I don't know if you have it. Because yeah, a mean, or,
0: or not. so many Americans don't have potable water. Uh, obviously, it's not just Flint. It's like three thousand Flint-like cities or something ridiculous like that across the country. Mm-hmm. So, if waters a right, a lot of people got some class la- action lawsuits. They need to get together and start suing over because yes, what? Well, uh, Paris, did
9: it. <laughs> France. Paris did it. They they recovered the water from private manhuns like that. I don't know exactly how it was, but it was not not many years ago that it was on private hands, and now it's not.
4: Yeah, Paris. Uh, do- Paris took back their their uh, water system not too long ago. Now they have one of the best in the world, and it's profitable.
0: <laughs> it's like, I on. love this. This is so fascinating. Like, why in the whole context of the discussions around Flint that have been going on for you know like eight years now? I can understand that. How, how have we not had that conversation? Like, why aren't we talking about nationalizing whatever the hell? What is the what is that horrible company? What is the company that switched the pipeline? You know, like I don't, I can't even name the name of the company. That 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 name should be in, enemy number one.
4: Well, we, you know, m- a lot, most water utilities are publicly owned in the U.S. Um, but so. there was,
0: I feel like there was like, wasn't it a corporate? Wasn't there some? Was it Quinnesly? I feel like there was some corporate shenanigans that happened. In, I'm sorry, I need to have Brent yeah, here to just company. explain this to me, and I. <laughs> forgot um anyway th- thank you cele well, go everybody no, go back and okay. listen to that recent um i'm sorry no thank you I I really appreciate so many of uh, you calling in from all over the place and giving some international perspective because what is increasingly clear, if it wasn't already, is that this is not some pie in the sky stuff. This is stuff that's been tried and tested. And it's ridiculous that it's not even a part at all of our public conversation here in the great U.S. of A. Uh, Let's hear from you, Armchair. I am intrigued by your Simpsons avatar and your name. Hey there!
10: Yeah, thank you. Uh, thanks for doing this and taking my call. Yeah. Um, so, just uh, to, I guess, present my perspective on the nationalization. Um, mm-hmm. I think, and I and I'd love to hear what you think. Like, uh, to me, um, something that you mentioned a little bit earlier about the. The intangibility of the, um, of the threat of climate change. So if, if the government is controlling, uh, big oil and, you know, controlling the production of oil, um, wouldn't it be harder than arguably to switch off to and, and switch to, uh, a more green, um, uh, an alternative energy model? Because yeah, you can argue that Of course, you know, if it's part of the government, then it's under more of a public control. But then also, if it's part of the government, then there are – there's a large internal lobby that is dependent on government funding. And so, you know, like in the case of Pentagon and, you know, defense uh, – all all of the defense agencies uh, that are, you know, right now in the – you know, part of the government – They, on in a large, uh, there a large reason why they get so much funding is because they are very uh, successful in communicating why they need more funding. Uh, Very successful in some uh, in some cases, uh, communicating uh, the the threats the United States faces around the world, and sometimes they are, you know, they exaggerate those threats. Specifically, Mm -hmm. I would argue specifically to get that much funding mm-hmm. or at least maintain it. So, um so yes, yeah, so, so my concern uh here is that essentially you have this dying industry that is hurting the world and hurting, you know, and will hurt the world going forward at a much uh higher pace and specifically will hurt uh you know some of the most poor people in the world and you're putting it in um in inside the most powerful uh government machine in the world and uh I'm just a little concerned about the you know giving more power to people who are largely immune from um from the consequences that that you know lobby would bring about the negative consequences that that lobby would bring about yeah th- uh, matt this yeah. is
0: this is a similar this is the i a, a version of kind of this this Question. I mean, it, in a world where, you know, a hypothetical Bernie style person were president or maybe, you know, someone who had full confidence in that would do the right thing. If there were some checks and balance, some checks and balances in place, that would make sure that the reasons for which the oil industry were internalized. You know, were followed through on. But it's not entirely. Clear. I think there's, there's some le- this is some legitimate pushback about like. Is there not a political benefit to keeping the oil industry, the enemy, the outsider that we're attacking and trying to bring down? What what does happen politically when it is coterminous with the state?
8: Yeah,
4: I mean it's the same question, right? Um, Remember, the alternative is that these industries are the equity of these companies, um, which also gives the voting rights and ultimate control. The company is held in the hands of primarily affluent Americans and some other. Affluent people across the world who are invested in this stock, um, and so that's the alternative. And you just have to ask yourself, I guess, what do you think that they are going to do?
0: Well, let me um, ask you this, Matt. Like we, you reference these other examples in Scandinavia. Have any of them made meaningful climate action? And do you think that's a consequence of those industries having been nationalized?
4: You know, one of them has. It's kind of a funny story. I don't really know what to make of it. It's a little bit odd, but, uh, Denmark had a nationalized oil company, Finland, Norway and Denmark all have nationalized oil companies at one point, Nesti in Finland, Equinor in Norway. And the one in Denmark was called Dong and Dong, the the, the government there said, you no, know, no longer Dong. We're not doing oil and gas anymore. <laughs> We're going to do renewable energy only, and they renamed the company Orsted, and Orsted is now 50.1% owned by the Danish state, and it's the largest wind producer in the world. In fact, mm-hmm. most of the offshore wind contracts in the U.S., because they've been awarding, like I don't know, it's up to like 20 or 30 offshore wind contracts have been awarded, um, Orsted is winning almost all of those contracts. So they're installing almost all of the US offshore wind. It's a Danish state owned company that used to be an oil and gas company. They divested all of their oil and gas producing assets and switched to wind, which is a specific climate change kind of thing. Now I don't know really what to make of it because they didn't they didn't uh uh, strand their oil and gas assets. They sold them <laughs> to, uh, you know, um, but nonetheless, you can see them making very intentional decisions and, and Norway, they're doing this, something similar with their oil company it used to be called stat oil. They rebranded it Equinor. And that was part of a shift that they're making with Equinor to try to turn it into more of a renewables kind of, uh, entity. And I don't know how that's going much more slowly, I think. Um, but they're trying to diversify their energy portfolio with Equinor and switch into renewable generation. So like, they definitely have examples of the state you know, playing around with these entities like that. Now, whether the US state would do that, I don't know. Um, but I still think that the state <laughs> has the ability to manage the decline much better than keeping the Uh, keeping it privately owned and keeping it dependent on private capital to continue to function in the short term, whether the state actually would do that is another question.
0: Um, Part of the weirdness is that we, the state is already giving the oil industry so many, so much money in subsidies and there's a world where it could be saying, okay, we're going to subsidize, you know, workers who are the sub, you know, Basically, the victims of a, a green new deal to make sure it's a just transition. And we, we're going to end the subsidies because we're only—it's only us that's really keeping this thing afloat in the in the first place—and we're also going to use that money to make sure that it's not workers that are hurt by the fact that we're rap, ramping down these subsidies. Well, I mean, the, the state is already playing this huge role. There is some skepticism, I think, that is fair to have—that it's not already doing that when that's you know short of nationalization. I I've, you know, it, it already is protecting the baby. I feel
4: like I feel like the word subsidy. I feel like it gets a little bit muddled here, Mm -hmm. you know, these are price subsidies, right? Mm -hmm. They're provided to the oil and gas companies on the theory. And I think in practice reality, though maybe not a hundred percent that they will result in lower prices for consumers. They do the same thing for food, right? The ag bill every year, hundreds of billions of dollars of subsidy to the agricultural sector. Mm -hmm. If you've seen some of the prices, I don't know if you've ever looked into this but occasionally people will publish prices of certain stuff that you would you buy at the supermarket and and they'll tell you what they think it would be without the agricultural subsidies that we have each year. And it's something like, you know, a gallon of milk would would cost twice as much mm-hmm. as it current as it currently does if it weren't for ag subsidies. So like these are these are programs meant to reduce the price of these kind of key commodities for consumers and i mean i'm all for you know carbon tax and running up the price of carbon but i feel like it's a little bit confused because it's seen as just like oh the the government gives them this money and and then for what i don't know to pay dividends to shareholders it's like the motivation for the subsidy is to keep the price low for consumers because people get mad you know but
0: isn't the thing that we want i mean again this is difficult because you're not trying to disadvantage consumers and people need cars and such to get to work and to heat their houses and stuff but isn't the whole point that we are we are sustaining our reliance on this thing that's killing us because, because we are artificially we're basically subsidizing everybody's ability to keep turning on their um their truck
4: we are concerned we want to ultimately
0: if if the goal is ramping it down this is what i guess i'm trying to say and but it's so delicate is if the goal is ramping it down doesn't that happen faster if oil basically becomes unaffordable
4: i mean that's one approach but if oil becomes unaffordable
0: the question is a question
4: of timing right Mm. if if you increase the price of oil by like fourfold tomorrow um Certainly, you're going to think that's going to be a lot of people searching for alternatives, right? Like, i got to find something because I can't do this. But how long is it going to take to build that many electric vehicles? And how long is it going to take to produce that much clean energy? We've got to build all the solar sites, the wind sites, the nuclear sites, whatever you're you're using. How long is it going to take, Matt?
0: How long is it going to freaking take? Because how (laughs) many years do we have left on this climate clock?
4: I know, but I'm just... I'm just saying that the amount of time it takes for people for the alternative, because the idea of the higher price is to get someone to substitute, say, I'm going to substitute oil for some other energy source that's cheaper. But if that energy source doesn't exist because you can't build uh, the electricity generation and you can't build the vehicles and you can't do that in like, in an instant, (laughs) you know, it takes many, 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 many years, then that's not really going to work. You know, that's just going to cause a lot of economic problems, a lot of strain, elect, election chaos. Right. You know it's
0: just, I mean? just frustrating you- me. sorry, sorry, go ahead, armchair.
10: <laughs> yeah, no, I was just going to ask, like, uh, do you know, maybe uh, like uh, based on research, because I have no idea uh, myself, like at what point it is predicted that. Will be able to basically um, um, substitute oil for uh, green energy, just price-wise. Well,
4: it's already price competitive uh, for uh, electrical purposes. Like solar is price competitive. Um, it's got other problems, including that doesn't produce energy during the day. Uh, like the the not the fossil fuel alternatives for electricity are more or less. Competitive, and certainly, if the state got involved and wanted to like bring the cost down, it could, um, and it's already like uh, if you put solar panels on your roof, the federal government will pay for 26 percent of the cost, and that makes it clearly cheaper than the electricity cost across basically all the U.S. Um, so like that's all doable, but it's more of a question of not getting the prices right, but just literally how many panels do we have to produce and how many factories do we need to build and how many hours do those factories need to be need to be running to get that many panels out the door or get that many wind farms installed or get that, you know, like that's just feels a like that tremendous Use of labor and materials.
0: That question should have been answered 20 years ago. And all of our green new Dealy conversation should have been about hitting those cut points, not just this carbon emissions cut point.
4: Yeah, well, you've got to do both, right? So that's why I think I would say manage decline, right? You want to bring the oil consumption down at the same time as you bring uh, the replacement energy up, right? And I think Norway is another good example of this, although, of course, it has a state-owned oil company, of course, and some people give them shit for that. Uh, All that company does is export oil. For domestic purposes, uh, Norway uses very few fossil fuels 100% um, 100% of the electricity in the country is produced with non fossil fuels. Um, it's 100% clean energy. And they've been uh, phasing in electric vehicles. And so nowadays in Norway, um, the majority of new vehicles that are purchased are electric vehicles. And this has been a long process. It's taken like 10, 15 years to get there because you got to build the charging stations. You got to get the incentives right. You got, you know, there was a whole lot of shit they had to do to get that to where it was. Um, but now they're here and, and they're planning by 2025, they're going to ban new purchases of, of gas powered vehicles altogether.
10: And the, sorry, just, just to, just because I'm interested. So like the infrastructure there, yeah, it's built by the government. Is that correct? Like all those charging stations, etc. Or is that like private actors that are working on that?
0: Matt, you're muted. Matt, do we lose Matt?
10: I think we lost Matt.
0: Matt, do you know you're on. I mean, I, I see him still there, but maybe something came up. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, armchair.
10: It's okay. We'll okay. work
0: that out. But I, I, I appreciate the question, and I do think, I mean, what the point? I the point I was just trying to make was that it does feel like very little of our conversation is specifically about. I mean, even if you think, you know, we focus so much on the oil companies being big and bad, and why do they keep sucking stuff out of the ground? And I do think there's not enough of a conversation about providing alternatives in a way that would be at all commensurate with what all of the screaming right. head head of head of flame climate goals are. And that is very disappointing. It's frustrating. I, right. I wonder, frustrated.
10: like, I wonder, yeah, I wonder, like, if if the like, as Matt is saying, like, if the problem right now is not the price but production. Uh, like, I wonder if then we should nationalize, uh, uh, you know, well, not maybe like acquire, but certainly like have government uh, green uh, companies that are, you know, building all those, you know, all, all the infrastructure that is needed for.
0: Yes. King Zalindra. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I, mm-hmm. I, I think that when we're talking about like World War Two nationalization for climate, that was supposed to be the thing. I mean, there's a, there's a world where instead of all of this uh, fist-bumping and, and, like, jingoist war-crying over Ukraine, the people with the red and blue flag pins would say, oh, and, you know, what we need to do right now and as part of this, like, anti-war movement is ramp up our ability to be free from these despotic oil-producing companies that have us constrained in these ways and are forcing us into these military conflicts. You know, if we're going to ramp up and start – spending billions of adding billions of dollars to the budget i know it's not a real budget don't come at me mmt people but instead of doing all of that spending that we're doing and stuff say this is an excuse a political moment we could be doing x y and z we know that why that doesn't happen but i don't know why leftists aren't speaking in those terms um anyway i appreciate thank you you. thank you for
10: taking my call
8: yeah
0: yeah of course let's hear from allison and we're, we're wrapping up here anyway because anyway, we're coming up on the two-hour mark. But I appreciate all of you. Uh, before Allison talks, I want to remind everyone to like the videos and subscribe to the Bad Faith YouTube channel and also follow me here on this app and elsewhere. I really appreciate those of you who made so many great clips from the last episode. I will be pushing those out to the Internet. But remember, you can also download them as audiograms and push them out to Twitter because the easiest thing in the world to do is to retweet. Uh, but go ahead, Allison. What's on your mind tonight?
11: Hi, um, I've been listening since, you know, back in when you had the burn podcast. And so really, really excited to talk tonight. Um, I, I, I guess my biggest thing is, like, we were talking about this in the chat, but like the left really has no imagination. And even for myself, like I'm, I'm 32. So I'm like, I guess I would consider myself like a middle to elder millennial. And I just, I really don't know how these things would work. Like you can say nationalize this, socialize that, but like, you know, it's, it's good to see concrete like examples, like step one, two, three, so that we are able to like actually talk about it with our, you know, friends and family and and you know, in political organizations, as well as like, because political education, I think, and like not just political education, but education in general, I think is one of the biggest things lacking in America. Um, and, it, and, you know, and it's not very like palatable either. Like you're like, "Oh, become a communist, and then you read it and you're just like, "Oh my Jesus, this is really boring. Like I gave up books for a reason, you know, and I think that's why podcasts have become such a real taco like it's it's been hard like you guys gotta get through all those pages, and I'm like, this is why I did not go to grad <laughs> no, school, guys. you were just or-
0: preaching to the <laughs> choir. I say on here that I don't want to read and that people want to take my scalp, but like honestly,
11: I people know. are busy, books are hard, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> like, I cannot read and do laundry. Like, I, I, I right. feel like it's a very privileged place like, oh, we'll just read this book or, you know, I was like, that's why podcasts and radio and, you know, one-on-one conversations in general have so always t- been so t- influential.
0: Books Books on on paper.
11: Paper. Audio yeah. audiobooks are helpful yeah audiobooks i wish but sometimes like they're really boring like i i like the yeah. cadence of a natural conversation i feel like it hits different and it i think it hits the heart different as well mm-hmm. um when you're and that's the importance of having you know political education and like so back to the beginning is we're having these conversations about like, okay, well, what do we need to do to get it done? Right. And the people are like, okay, we'll get into the streets or protest this, you know, uh, you know, become a, you know, run for Congress, blah, blah, blah. You know, they're like, I think most people, they, they don't feel safe protesting and like, There's a reason why, like, you know, the media has portrayed protesting as a potentially dangerous thing, given us all of this, you know, we never see like, peaceful protests be on media, we always see like the violence, or they really make us Americans and and everyone scared to actually go out into the streets. And especially with COVID now, it's even more difficult, because like, oh, my goodness, maybe I'm bringing something home. Mm -hmm what I'm, I guess what I'm saying is thank you for having this kind of conversation. Um, and I, I hope this is one of many more conversations, um, not just about like socialization of, you know, key industries that we need to get to our, you know, future economy or future, you know, future period. Mm -hmm. Um, like, but just in general to like, how, how do we interact with government? How do we protest? How do we create organizations that actually work? And how do we withstand the pull and the drag of not only propaganda, but the quick serotonin of the retweet or the, the hot take and have an actual one-on-one conversation with people about key issues and like, and like, not just an expert, come in and say it, but like lay people being able to explain it to other lay people in, you know, explain you know, like was it explain like I'm five terms. Mm-hmm. Um, especially for young people, um, nowadays I feel so like you know, we're so disconnected from the peace movement, from the environmental movement, from the women's movement. Um, like we're so disconnected from that. Like we don't have any of that history in our schools. And sometimes there'll be documentaries and sometimes people will talk about it and maybe we'll read a book or two. But I think um, if you could, that would be fantastic. But um, in general, I, it's I have, left- have to read start. the
0: books for everybody else.
11: I get it. Just get an old just person on. <laughs> I'm going to be
8: like, where were you in 1960?
11: You know? Um, well, look, I, I've got the Ray, I've yeah.
0: got Ray McGovern's tab open um for the earlier yeah. callers ask. Uh, I definitely, we're going to have Reverend Barbara, Barbara on. I, I definitely agree with everything that you're saying Um because I do think it's about making people, the, the 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 these things just feel less abstract and more possible because I don't, yeah. I do think the disconnection isn't about apathy. It's about
11: overwhelm. Yes. Yes. Like, I mean, you're, like it's not, and not just so overwhelming on the the whole of the ending of the world, but also like I got rent to pay. I got like, mm-hmm. I mean, like so the very first caller um, mentioned like if the system has been created to do this to us, so that we don't get into the streets, so that we're that we feel this, like nihilism. And I feel if there was more imagination, um, and portraying of what could be, um, and not just in 50 years, but in 10 years and five years, and then actionable actions in the now to make those things happen. Um, and I I would love for our elected leaders who are supposed to be quote unquote progressive to start making these, you know, and not just in these big things, you know, but actual like one, two, three steps, let's do this. Um, I think it would be really inspirational to a lot of people. Um, I mean, I, you know, so um, that's all I had to say. I just want to say, Dick, thank you for having this kind of conversation. Um, and like, I please, I, I, mean, everything you do, I'm going to support you regardless, um, even if it's trash, but like, it's never. Um, and so I just please keep doing what you're doing. As long as you don't get blocked on YouTube, I will be a Patreon subscriber. Y'all go hit that Patreon, $5 a month. It's not that bad. One gallon of gas, you know? Um, so yeah, anyways, thank you so much. And also Matt, thank you and your wife for all the work y'all do. Um, it's really, really appreciated. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Allison. You're so sweet. Um, on that note, that's a great note to end on. I appreciate you all. Again, even if you can't, $4 or $5 a month, making these little clips and posting them to social for me to retweet and stuff is the best. Again, if you make the clip and just download it to your phone, it downloads as an audiogram. so a little video that you can play with a transcript, tra- You know, the words transcribed on the bottom, which you can then post, which people are much more likely to click on and listen to than just the link back to Colin. So that's a pro tip. Also, following all the socials. Please do follow and consider supporting the People's Policy Project. I am so grateful that we have people like Matt, for whom you know who can who can do what they do for a living, and who can comb through all of this knowledge and bring facts and figures and real life examples and studies and numbers that have been crunched. Because I don't know how the left would subsist without the big brains like Matt and the reporters like. David Sirota out there doing the Lord's work and giving us the primary source material to make the arguments, for the broader benefit of the left. Um, I want to say that I really appreciate how many of you are still in the queue. And I hope you guys like that. I'm jumping around a little bit. I know it must be frustrating for like Jordan. I'm sorry. or Whoever was like in the front of the line, I I really apologize, but I do think it's nice to get some fresh voices in there. That doesn't mean I'm never going to call on people who have spoken before, but I hope people like that. We're mixing it up a bit. I had an idea for an outro song, but now it's completely escaped me perhaps because I'm hypoglycemic and I have to eat dinner. So we'll just play the same old intro for outro, but I want to say I echoing Allison's point. I'm about to blow dry my hair (laughs) and make dinner while listening to podcasts. So Vigila podcast. Thank you, Matt. I'm not sure what happened with your audio, but I really appreciate you being here today and helping me for, uh, answer some of these questions, which I am much less equipped to do and to everyone as always. Please keep the faith.
8: Wish I was a
2: lion in the tall grass. Wish I had a pilot podcast. I wish I had a strong donkey that can holler at us and travel with portable speakers can bother us. I wish I had a million pounds. I wish I had a million problems. Wish I million problems. wish I had a million problems. That way I couldn't pinpoint all of a million outcomes. I wish I found a genie lamp. I wish them girls gave me them sugar like B-Man. Yeah.
8: I wish I was a comedian. Late night sitcom syndicated on TV.